Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for the group discussion today. And as usual, I'm joined by Dr. Nigam Aurora. Hello, everyone. Also joining us, welcome back, Dr. Del Potter, Chief Science Officer of Leaf Labs and co-founder of Aya Biosciences. Hello, everyone. And joining us again, Dr. Ethan Russo, co-founder, CEO of Credo. Welcome back. Howdy. And joining us for the first time, Ethan's partner in crime, Nisha Whiteley. She is also the co-founder and chief operating officer of Credo. Oh, thank you for having me. Pleasure. Well, listener, we have a great show for you today. For our popular science section, we'll be discussing the naturalistic and long-term effects of mescaline as covered by SciPost.org. We'll discuss um, some interesting articles that have been coming out about non-psychedelic psychedelic compounds and are these just a bogus pipe dream. And we'll, we'll end our popular literature discussion with something sweet, a little story about maple syrup and indigenous populations. Then for our peer-reviewed portion of the show, we'll discuss an article about serotonin and brain function, as well as ending with a hot off the presses article, Cannabinoid Hyperemesis Syndrome Survey and Genomic Investigation, authored by none other than Ethan and Nisha, who have joined us today. So we'll be right back, uh, and the show will start in, in about 30 seconds. But first, I also want to say we also have a new game called Guess That Drug, where I will read a case report summarized case report and our contestants here will have to guess which drug which cannabis compound which psychedelic compound from a few choices so stick around for that we'll be right back And we're back. Now it's time for us to peruse and discuss some news and popular science articles. This is the non-peer-reviewed portion of the show. And away we go. Our first story is from SciPost.org. And it's on the use of mescaline to facilitate improvements in several psychiatric conditions. So this journalist covered some recent data coming out of the ACS Pharmacology and Translational Science. And... What's interesting about taking data from a peer-reviewed source is that it's translated to a popular source for people to read. And, and we're lucky to be joined by, you know, Dr. Del Potter, who has a background in psychedelics research, works with psychedelic companies in ethnobotany. And, you know, it seems like every day we're hearing about the, the potential of psychedelics, the potential of derivatives of psychedelics. And then occasionally we hear about things like mescaline, which is derived from the peyote cactus, uh, you know, one of the limiting factors is, you know, there needs to be a lot of it to seems like more so than, you know, microgram dosing. So the dosing is different than your typical psychedelic. But, um, you know, this is a growing body of research seems to suggest it can have lasting positive effects. And Dell, I just would like to get your initial sort of response to this paper. Do you think this is overhyped? Do you think this is underhyped? Our company is going to be rushing into the peyote space soon. Does, do you think it's a con, or, you know like it's going to give LSD a run for its money in treating various mental health conditions? 
feel free uh, to ignore that question if you want to. <laughs> I'm happy to see that uh, there is research taking place on mescaline. It has a long his legacy history of indigenous use, uh, you know, through through the use of peyote. Uh, what I'm not so pleased with is the methodological framework of this study. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of self-reported uh, studies, self-reported in terms of uh, what, what effect it has on depression, what effect it has in terms of significance, uh, you know, and that met those methodological problems, I think, really present a significant problem for the study. Good point, Dell. Um Ethan, you've had some experience in clinical research, to, to put it lightly. What is sort of your response when you, you know, you're, I understand you're in the cannabis field, but when you come over to, you know, the, the psychedelic lane and you see this type of work, do you see it kind of following in similar lines with, with cannabis where research is a little difficult to do? Sometimes it's not gold standard. Um, your response to the article. Sure. Well, uh, first, if I could, I'd like to provide a little historical context, uh, both personally and in general. Uh, I came uh, to cannabis study uh, subsequent to uh, psychedelic study and, and ethnobotanical work, uh, really beginning intensively in 1990, but going clear back to 1970. Uh, people should understand that uh, Lophophora williamsii, the species uh, from which peyote is derived, uh, is an endangered plant in the border regions of Mexico and Texas. Um, so it's a critical resource at this point. And of course, it can be made synthetically, but um, there are always people that are going to feel that uh, it's better coming from the original source. Uh, so it has a thousands of years use among indigenous people. Uh, but additionally, people may not be aware that this was a mainstream drug in the U.S. on the USP, U.S. Pharmacopeia, in the 19th century with indications including migraine treatment. Uh, and that's really how I got into the psychedelic research. Uh, so it has in common with LSD and with psilocybin and with DMT that um, these all have medical applications that have been clear uh, for decades uh, to science. Now, switching over, yeah, unfortunately, for better or worse, um, these kind of self-reports aren't adequate uh, for either regulators or to convince our physician peers. Uh, so until or unless uh, there's some randomized controlled trials, there's uh, a contingent that's not going to be satisfied with the available data. Okay. Thank you, Ethan. Yeah. And for the listener, if you haven't had a chance to click on the link in the show notes and look at this article, one of the things that they asked people to write about was one of their most memorable mescaline experiences and the benefits from that. And, and Nisha, I'd like to kind of get your response maybe to that and this idea of, um, you know, uh, naturalistic use of a product versus clinical use and sort of like, you know, just conceptually, you know, uh, sometimes I go back and forth thinking like, oh, do you have to be outside in nature and take a psych and have the treatment there? Or can you do it in, you know, a modern day clinical setting? Because people are talking about naturalistic use, naturalistic settings, and 
that oh that produces the best experience but i don't know if we have data to back that up but but just kind of your off the hip response to this article i find psychedelics very interesting and uh <laughs> i think they both work uh, for many people, they are certainly going to have a superior experience when they are um, utilizing psychedelics responsibly in nature. I also think that uh, for people who have suffered trauma, uh, they will benefit from having a clinically guided experience in a safe, uh, potentially indoor environment. I also I'm starting to see more and more uh, guided psychedelic experiences where people are actually doing those in nature, which is potentially the best of both worlds. Nice. I, I really like that approach. You know, take that sort of um, complementary and alternative medicine approach to health. I think it's great. Uh, Nigam, as, as the potentially the last person to comment on this before we move to the next article, you know, you've worked in the cannabis space a lot. You're working now you know, in the psychedelic space with me. Um, question I kind of want to ask you, having, you know, having seen you work with a lot of formulators in the space and a lot of beverage companies, um, and given peyote's historic use in whiskey in the wild, wild west days, I'm starting to think like maybe there might be mescaline beverages. You know, so how soon before someone is like, I have a CBD mescaline beverage or like a peyote cactus extract and a hemp extract. Do you think that's on the horizon or do you just like, that's totally crazy? Well, I can uh, take one approach to my response, which uh, I was thinking about when I was reading this article and we've talked about it before that uh, California is advancing this bill right now for uh, decriminalization of several psychedelics and they specifically left out uh, peyote, uh, cactus and mescaline, uh, because they're trying to, uh, to, to what Ethan was speaking to, like it's an endangered species. It's also something used by indigenous populations. So, so far as from that angle should, you know, companies for, for-profit companies, uh, or groups that don't have a, an indigenous right to those plants and don't have the know-how to create it synthetically, should they really be like making consumer products out of this thing? Maybe not. Um, I'm also, uh, you know, I've heard from a very knowledgeable friend that the taste uh, is is quite harsh. So uh, similar to Jayhan, you're asking about, um, you, you know, my experience with, with beverages in the cannabis space. That, that's a problem we have too in, in formulation with the taste masking, with the, uh, you know, they're just kind of funny thing. How do you make a weed drink that doesn't taste like weed? Because, uh, of course, God forbid that, you know, people consuming weed would taste it a little bit. Right. So anyways, um, there, there's a lot of things to, to be considered, uh, some of which I just went uh, hit. Uh, another thing that I just want to say um, really quickly about this study that may also play to what you're saying, Jayhan, should there be a mescaline CBD tea on the market or whatever, um, is that there in, in this study, it's a cool study. Um, but it is a survey. It's a self-reporting survey. I totally agree with what Dell said, and I've brought this up before when we discussed it, that the bias seems pretty obvious that someone who's going to go out of their way to click this link, to follow this path, to go through this survey, they're someone who had some affection or some decent experience with this molecule probably. So um, there may be a flip side, or there's almost certainly a flip side 
what's on the other side of that coin? And do those people want to drink a mescaline beverage? Maybe not. You know, good point. And I imagine the dosing would play a, um, you know, a, a big role in mescaline, considering it's not like, um, you know, LSD or psilocybin where you don't need as much. Like in, in some of the reports I'm reading, it's, it's quite a lot of the active ingredients that are required, which may limit its utility as sort of a intoxicating uh, beverage. But, but I think there's this allure of consuming plants and fungi and maybe the occasional fish or other creature that produces psychedelic effects without getting the psychedelic effects. And that brings us to our second story this week. And we've seen two, you know, um, we have two different articles here because they kind of cover it in slightly different ways. And it's on our non-psychedelic psychedelic compounds, a bogus pipe dream or the cure for all our conditions. Now, when I first read this article in Forbes and then the next one, um, in, in the News Observer about the UNC professor, about Rick Doblin, about these other companies, you know, ones, uh, at first I thought, wow, what a great moonshot. Like, we're going to try and take the trip out of psychedelics, right? Oh, wow, this is going to like create all this like new technology, new ways of studying it. And then my second thought was, I wish I could get a $27 million grant from the government to design drugs that don't work. Because what is a non-psychedelic psychedelic? It's maybe it's Xanax, like, because it acts as a serotonin receptor, just to speak conceptually. So, you know, this is where I, I'm kind of in this sort of like balance here, where like, this is an interesting target that you're probably not going, you're probably going to fail at, even the guy who got the grants, like, we're probably going to fail at this project. You know, so, I'm, and the, but the part of me is like, this just really doesn't seem like a worthwhile endeavor to throw millions of dollars into, because maybe the psychedelic experience has some of the benefits um you know and, and and ethan i'd like to go to you you know i learned something new today about you even though we've been going to conferences for over a decade about your your ethnobotanical background in terms of psychedelics and i always knew you were a plant guy but maybe you could search some light on you know what are the benefits of pursuing or or maybe the not benefits like should we be focusing on mastering the drugs we have that are psychedelic and their benefits and ego dissolution and these experiences might be really key to the therapy. I your think they are, uh, you know, and so I do think this is a bit of a pipe dream, notwithstanding that uh, Dr. Roth is a brilliant researcher, the discoverer of the Kappa opioid receptor, uh, among others. But, um, you know, as evidenced by the recent phase three MDMA study showing uh, marked benefit, uh, unequivocal benefit for treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder, um, I don't think that uh, you can possibly have the therapeutic gains on a non-psychedelic psychedelic. Um, you know, for example, let's just compare 5-methoxy-dimethyltryptamine. It's sort of like an exploding head with no visuals or anything else. Um, so it's unclear to me why people would be interested in it uh, recreationally. But a better example um, would be difference between recreational use of a psychedelic and that in directed therapy. Um, and, you know, my personal experience included uh, doing ayahuasca uh, in a ritual context with the Machi Genga tribe in Peru. And I guarantee 
from my point of view, that was a much more, more profound experience in terms of what I learned and its influence on my life than any recreational uh, psychedelic experience that I, I had previously, including uh, peyote uh, at rock concerts. So yeah, you know, New Year's Eve, 73, 74 at the Cow Palace with the Marshall Tucker Band, I became ecstatic during uh, the song, Can't You See? Um, but I, I can't tell you that uh, it cured my depression uh, for years afterwards, uh, for example, um, anything like that. Um, no, I, I think it's clear that the kind of insights that people gain, particularly in a guided situation, whether it be in a ritual context or in a formal therapeutic context, as has been required uh, with the MDA, MDMA clinical trials, um, uh, I am certain that the differences in efficacy are, are going to be dramatic uh, with the guided situation. Um, I think considering the uh, ego-shattering potential of these substances, uh, you need someone to help integrate the experience um, and put the good with the bad um, and gain, gaining the insight that uh, really makes this a profound experience. Thank you, Ethan. Um, Dell, you know, you're active in, in the chief, the CSO role for psychedelic companies and have a lot of things going on in this space. I want to maybe ask you a question, putting on my capitalist Ayn Rand hat here. What, what is better in terms of drug development? To take a, create a substance people need to take once a year with, uh, or once every couple of years, or taking the trip out of the psychedelic and now it's a pill they take every day that acts on that system. Sort of, you know, like the, the you know, creating a microdose that's not a microdose uh, that people can take regularly and, and you know, have maybe 30% of an effect or something like that. But, um, you know, I'd like to get your response, Del, then, then Nisha, I'd like to hear from you. But Del, your kind of response to like, you know, because I know you're kind of like thinking about developing products and really studying these things. Um, you think you're, you know, you think you could get investors to be like, we're going to have LSD, but here's the great part. There's no L S or D in it. It's just it's something else. And it doesn't get you too high, but it, people will be taking it every day versus, you know, every couple of weeks or, you know, from this very sort of regimented way for a therapy. Any yeah, thoughts I on think, that? Yeah. I think a take home medication is certainly an attractive financial proposition, uh, and hence, I think that's part of the allure uh, of uh, this quest to find a non-psychedelic uh, psychedelic. But I think uh, the problem is that they focus specifically on the biological markers that indicate neuroplasticity. We know from uh, studies of the pathophysiology of depression that uh, it's associated with contraction of dendrites uh, with uh, reduced signaling in certain parts of the brain. So what these scientists focus on is the fact that uh, psychedelics tend to increase neuroplasticity as defined by increased production of BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, and increased dendrite growth. And believe that, you know, that is going to offer sort of a biological solution to uh, depression. Uh, I more uh, in, you know, thinking more that the actual effect 
of psychedelics in terms of depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, PTSD, stuff like that, really is better explained by, for example, Carhart Harris's uh, entropic brain hypothesis, which states that the rigid states of consciousness, such as depression, uh, are partially defined by these rigid thought loops and rumination, uh, which are sort of on the low end spectrum of brain, brain entropy. Uh, so when we introduce vibrant states of consciousness, such as the psychedelic states, which are on the high end of the spectrum, uh, it allows for change and new sense data and information uh, to enter the equation. And, and I really think that is where the benefits of psychedelics lie. But to more fully answer your question, um, you know, I, I think the quest, the traditional pharma quest to be able to provide a compound with better safety, a better safety profile with fewer adverse side effects, uh, you know, is, you know, wor a worthwhile project. But I just don't believe that we're going to get there by completely removing the psychedelic experience. Okay. You know, that, that's a really good point. And I feel like that's a good thing to be skeptical about um, in terms of removing um, this, you know, the trip from psychedelics. Um, you know, Nisha, what are your thoughts on sort of this approach to research? Do you have high hopes for um, this, what could be a novel class of drugs? I do. Um, I, I agree very much with Dell that I think there's real value in the experience of, of the trip. And, you know, what we see over and over and over again is that when we're using plant medicines, um, so much of what exists in the plant that make the experience um, more holistic provides a great deal of benefit that we lose when we start working with the isolated single singular compounds. And so, you know, I, I, I think that um, for a lot of people, a psychedelic trip is a lot of fun. And for other people, it's quite scary. And then there are the people who kind of land somewhere in the middle. And when we talk about psychedelics, I think a lot of people really expect that, okay, this is, this is a fun thing. And that just isn't always the case. It may be very useful and beneficial, but um, it, it can be also a little bit stressful in the moment. And so, you know, I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth for a moment and say that I think that both things are possible, that there's real value in the direct plant-based medicines, as well as having um, value in more um, uh, prescription style medicines, and that there are different people who are going to benefit from each. Uh, and so I like having, having options and I think that they are all valuable in terms of pursuing the research for both the plant-based medicine, as well as the synthetic, synthetically derived medicines. I think, you know, it, it, you did a great job talking out of both sides of your mouth. I mean, I thought I, you know, I'm good at it too. Um, <laughs> And, you know, uh, Nigga, one of the things I, I, I'd kind of like to get some feedback maybe from you on is, you know, 
just talk out of both sides of my mouth. On one hand, you know, there's a lot of smart people out there doing amazing thing. You know, Ethan, I thought your point about Dr. Roth, like, yeah, he's a brilliant researcher, attempting to do very difficult and challenging things. But then there are a lot of stupid people out there and people who seem to intentionally act stupid. And and think about what happened when CBD got popular. Because I, you know, Ethan, I, I remember those days when people would talk about CBD at research conferences and nobody cared. And then all of a sudden, let's put it in everything, pour it on our entire life. And, um, you know, people started to say crazy things like, oh, CBD is better than THC at everything THC does because it's basically THC without the high. And, and I worry that we might get into this thing where consumers are not educated or willfully like suspension of disbelief that these products are LSD without the high are, you know, they have the same properties, all the good without any of uh, any of the uncomfortable stuff that someone might have to deal with in therapy. Like it's like going to a therapist and say, I want to feel better, but I don't want to talk about any of the things I need to change in my life. <laughs> but, but do you have concerns, I guess, about this sort of next wave of consumer products in this space? Is that, do you think it's like so far away but again, you know, just kind of seeing what marketing did for CBD with sort of like, we have an extract from the psilocybin cubensis and it doesn't get you high sort of thing. Sure. Yeah, share, oh. the, share the concerns. Um, you know, I, I think that a big mistake is being made. Um, you know, the pharmaceutical companies are certainly going to want to establish intellectual property rights on new developments. And that means synthetics uh, that are designed to lodge on uh, uh, the 5-HT2A receptor or whatever the target is. Um, but actually the path to develop uh, extracts of these natural products from plants uh, can be a great deal shorter. Um, and while you can't patent the plant, you can patent uh, the use or the preparation, um, depending on how it's extracted. So uh, for companies that are interested in this area, they should not neglect that fact. Um, and certainly there are various companies uh, that are developing uh, psilocybin uh, towards this therapeutic ends. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not saying there shouldn't be this kind of research on the non-psychedelic psychedelics, but um, the original sources should not be ignored. I uh, I had another thought here too. I'm gonna Jayhan. I'm gonna kind of respond to your thing with some questions. So here's a question: How do you achieve a billion dollar market cap on the public stock market? Here's another question: How do you get DARPA involved to the tune of twenty seven million dollars? I haven't heard this joke. How does it go? <laughs> oh, well, it goes, you make a lot of wild claims about what you can achieve, and then you get I, I, <laughs> I plan to take the stimulating effects out of caffeine. It's a billion-dollar product. Oh, $100 billion <laughs> product. Easy. So anyways, okay, so I'm, I'm being a little bit... Uh, no, no, you know, I think that's, that's a great point. There's a strategy here, and <laughs> there's going to be fruit from this project. You know, the, the, they use the cliche, the moonshot, right? It wasn't about going to the moon. It was about advancing our technology, making technology smaller, having these sort of these goalposts to hit. Like, that's why like soccer has like low scoring matches, right? If they increase the goalpost by like three feet, a lot more goals would be scored. But this is a very narrow goalpost. So whatever it gets through is going to be interesting and novel and 
yeah, so so I agree with you. Like this is kind of a bit of a pipe dream. It's like, what do these people want to hear that I'm trying to get money from? And it's it's something like this probably high risk, high reward, controversial. And uh, I can speak to just uh, a little bit, just like a, a one more point I want to make is uh, that there there's a couple things happening. One is that we're seeing this chase for the non psychedelic psychedelic, right? The psychedelic, you know, Why? molecular structure based drug that does not induce the psychedelic effect right and there's reasons for that people want to be able to uh you know take it home uh prescribe it as a take-home drug versus having to have two therapists and a hospital and all this extra overhead right so but on the flip side we're seeing in the research that the mystical experience the psychedelic part of it is helping people achieve the meaningful outcome so uh there's one other point that i'll make and uh we should probably discuss this article in in detail at, at a future point um i think dell maybe you had actually shared it with us but um i think it was you dell that there was an article about and, and maybe you can speak to it more thoroughly there was an article about bias in psychedelic research and there's this issue right so who's willing to take part okay it's mostly people who have an affinity for or an interest or have had good experience with psychedelics okay then you go to the therapy session okay who wants to sign up to be a psychedelic therapist well it's people who believe in it or who've tried it and who've had a beneficial circumstance and then where are you doing these clinical trials you're doing it at a major university that got millions of dollars or a medical center that got millions of dollars to perform this type of work for a drug company with a billion dollar market valuation on the public market, which plugs into my prior point. So uh, let me just rewind a little bit and say, I do believe in psychedelics potential in the therapeutic realm as medicine, but I think we need to let the true science, the objective science guide where it goes. And when I say we, and when I say let, I mean, who is we, who lets and anyways, Del, do, do you, do you want to speak to that any further? Well, well, to your point, uh, on on bias in these, you, you just outlined a number of areas uh, that are of methodological concern. Uh, I would just add to that also the fact that when you give someone a psychedelic, uh, there's no placebo group really that knows that doesn't know that that group over there got the psychedelic and this group didn't. I mean, uh, we all have enough experience. Uh, in the media and elsewhere, even if you were not uh, previously familiar with psychedelics, to know when you're receiving a psychedelic. It's not like a blood pressure medication uh, that would be subtle. Uh, so, you know, there are so many areas uh, that lack, uh, that offer real methodological, methodological concern in this area. Uh, but I also want to say that I guarantee that if you give me $27 million, I'll come up with some psychedelics that you'll like a great deal uh, and that will have fewer adverse side effects. Uh, oh, and, you know, we, we got to realize that this is a finance financing is coming from the defense department and they may have uh, other motivations besides simply, uh, you know, being able to, uh, you know, resolve these issues for veterans. Uh, there may be other forces at work here, uh, you know, in terms of a non-psychedelic psychedelic. 
Uh, a lot of people are pursuing this. I think it, it's the wrong direction. Yeah, absolutely, Dale. There could be some ulterior motives with when we take a natural product and purify it, isolate it, synthesize it, copy it, and then like push it on people. <laughs> um, you know, and then maybe they're looking for the anti psychedelic. So if their soldiers get exposed to psychedelic warfare, um, you know, like the, I guess the epitome of a bad trip, that they might have some sort of frontline treatment for that. Um, Just uh, one thing to chime in uh, before we go on to the next article. Ethan, I I think you wanted to share something about uh, Dr. Roth and his research. A quick little update to your prior comment. Uh, Sure. You know, I I misspoke. Um, uh, Professor Roth uh, didn't discover the kappa opioid receptor. Rather, he discovered that salvinorin A, uh, dissociative uh, hallucinogen, works by being a selective agonist at the cap opioid receptor. Um, so that's a, a sufficient uh, discovery in its own right. Absolutely. Yeah, th- thanks for clarifying. I just wanted to squeeze that in before we hop to the next article. <laughs> Thank you, Nigam. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, I mean, we could give uh, Dr. Roth a lot of credit for some other things, including publishing the article about LSD in the serotonin receptor. So, um, you know, I would give him lots of credit. Who knows? Maybe he influenced the discovery of the receptors too, Ethan. We, we, can, we can't know for sure. Um, so our next story is, I uh, hopefully, a little mind munchy, and it is about food. So we're going to dive into a little cultural, political significance of food here. Um, and, and this isn't directly related to psychedelics, but it is about the rich indigenous history of maple syrup coming to us from thepeak.ca. Um, and this talks about um, something I didn't really think about um, was that, you know, maple trees, their symbolism and the products they produce as sort of, you know, a very valuable connection to the land and cultural identity for indigenous populations. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting is, is I immediately you know, thought of like maple syrup on the shelf, which is high fructose corn syrup, it's refined sugar, they add dye to make it look like it. And in real maple syrup uh, is actually two, three times more expensive to get like the really good stuff. And, you know, it's just so funny that today we're talking about taking natural products, purifying them, then the purified ingredients um, aren't good enough. So we want to take the trip out of mescaline, take the trip out of psilocybin and create synthetic compounds, but then sort of like get the benefits of all the naturalistic products. And here we have maple syrup, which I guess, you know, very delicious, um, you know, coming from trees. But what do we do? We purify the sugar out of it. We, we remove a lot of the flavor to create this sort of standardized marketable product. Um, and so, you know, syrup was probably, you know, has a lot of economic benefits, remains the case today. But, you know, we have two ethnobotanists on the show, um, you know, Dell and Ethan, and, um, you know, maybe you can, uh, one of you wants to help us get through this sticky subject, Ethan. Sure. Well, I relate to this in a big way. I grew up in new England. Um, uh, you know, I, and I have to mention that, uh, Aunt Jemima's being decommissioned and it's really no sins of hers rather that, uh, that it's fake syrup. Um, so, I mean, anybody that's tried the real thing knows the difference. But I'd also like to put in a plug. It's mentioned in the article. Uh, there's now interest in other species, specifically the 
the big leaf maple uh, you get in the Northwest. Uh, we have in Washington State, and there are now a couple of companies that are making this kind of syrup. And I can personally vouch that it's much richer in taste. Um, I used it to make uh, the probably the most expensive batch of organic granola in history. Um, it was great while it lasted, but also I made herbal bitters uh, from the big leaf maple syrup, and uh, that's fabulous. So if one uh, likes those things. Um, so uh, again, um, this is a renewable resource. It takes a long time for a sugar maple or a big leaf maple to come into production, but um, you know, it, it, more of them than there are peyote buttons uh, out there. Uh, so. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in these developments and would encourage people to go for the real thing rather than the high fructose corn syrup. Yeah, and, and if you want to go for the ultra real thing, you can read about through this article, there's some links to ceremonies to celebrate uh, maple syrup, sort of sugar ceremonies as they were. Um, you know, Nisha, uh, are you, would you be open to trying some new species-derived maple syrup, or are you going to stick to what's on the shelf at your local store? Well, as a maple syrup junkie, I'm open to trying them all. <laughs> I use maple syrup a lot instead of sugar in my baking. Oh, really? I, I sometimes put it in my coffee. Um, it can be in the wintertime. It, it tastes pretty good. Um, and let's keep this just between us, but a maple syrup soda is pretty fantastic. Just a little maple syrup with some Topo Chico mm. or sparkling water hits the spot. <laughs> nice. I might have to try that with this heat wave that's going on during the summer. Wonderful. Uh, Dell, um, you know, you spent some time out in the field in, you know, studying ethnobotany and probably came across a lot of interesting food products. Um, what do you think of this article about maple syrup? You know, maple syrup would have been certainly one of the more benign uh, foods that I've tried in field situations. Uh, you know, some of the others are not quite as uh, attractive. Uh, but I'll, I will, will say that uh, it's really unfortunate that uh, when we begin to commercialize something, uh, we move it away from the indigenous context, which really frames it uh, uniquely. Uh, you know, it's easy to appropriate, uh, you know, uh, make maple syrup, but what we, we miss uh, are all the uh, stories and oral tradition that uh, contextualize how it was used, how important it was to their culture, basically the wisdom that kind of underlies the whole process uh, and, and, and a deterritorialization of the mechanics of, of maple syrup production. You know, it, I believe that it used to be the case that uh, uh, groups were able to identify specific trees that actually produced the best maple syrup. And, uh, you know, those particular trees were re revered uh, oh, and you know, there were also, uh, a number of practices associated with how maple syrup was purified, uh, that, uh, are kind of lost in the commercial production aspect. So, um, you know, that is certainly an area of concern, but, uh, I will say that, uh, traditional teachings, 
uh, about uh, maple syrup could provide a great deal of information about um, a better quality product. Uh, Ethan, would you like to follow up to Dell's comment? If people want to know more about traditional uses um, by North American indigenous groups, I'd suggest Kimmerer's uh, wonderful book, Braiding Sweetgrass. Yeah, fabulous book. Oh, wow. Thank you. Um, any final comments before we take a short break? All right. Well, I got to go put some waffles in the toaster. <laughs> <laughs> and that about wraps it up for our coverage of the non-peer review, the popular literature. And we'll be back after a short break with Rapid Fire Science. If you're enjoying these tunes during the break, be sure to check out Guru Music, a groovy custom music house and music library in the Bay Area, matching your digital needs with real musicians. That's G-O-O-R-O-O music. And we're back. Welcome to Rapid Fire Science, where we go around providing commentary and discussion about peer-reviewed articles. And away we go. And our first article is on serotonin and brain function, a tale of two receptors by Robin uh, Carhart Harris. And this article appears um, uh, in Sage Publications. Now, what is interesting about this article is it starts to explore, you know, we know that psychedelics interact with serotonin receptors, you know, 5-HT receptor family, you know, 1A, 2A, highly implicated in the effects of psychedelics. But what is the natural purpose of this? The system doesn't exist because psychedelics exist. It exists because it helps to regulate things in our body. It has some sort of business it's evolved to do. Um, and so what is the function of serotonin as the principle sort of of this review article and why it exists? And there's one question that I've sort of percolated is, you know, a lot of serotonin receptors are located in the cortex, which was one of the more modern things that evolved. Uh, to put it in sort of simple terms, it was the latest update to the brain uh, you know, the, the, the brain, the iBrain 12.0 or whatever, the cortex is one of the last things to sort of evolve, has lots of serotonin receptors in it, also has these extra pyramidal cells that seem to be important for the psychedelic effect and that processing. But also, you know, since things like psychedelics can outcompete serotonin or 5-HT, you know, 5-hydroxytryptamines for the receptors, it seems to beg the question that, well, does the body produce a natural psychedelic? Is that the purpose of these um, things? So uh, I wanted to just sort of get some thoughts, maybe start with you, Dell, who, ha you know, I think, you know, you have the most experience in terms of psychedelic science here and, you know, have introduced Nigam and I to a lot of the literature in this space. I thought this is a pretty good article that sort of lays out why we have a serotonin system and you know could you share with us some thoughts uh about this recent publication yeah um, in general uh what we have to understand is that uh we have primarily in terms of its action on depression uh two particular serotonin related receptor systems one is the 5-HD1A and the 5-HD2A uh, the serotonin receptor 1A is primarily for passive co coping. Receptor 2A is for an active 
type of co- coping. So you can define passive coping as more or less tolerating, uh, but not necessarily dealing with a source of psychological pain. And you could define active coping more as sort of actively dealing with a source of psychological pain by changing one's relationship to it. So under normal conditions, serotonin preferentially binds to the 1A receptor. So passive coping is more or less the brain's default mode. The 2A receptor becomes activated when serotonin levels rise. Uh, So we want high serotonin levels to initiate both active and passive coping. Otherwise, passive coping prevails. Uh, And we want to be sort of pre- proactive in dealing with stressors and not merely accepting them and feeling helpless. So it might, an analogy might be, um, if you have a boss who's abusive to you, uh, if we take an SSRI, which primarily affects the 1A receptors, we're going to just try to deal with that boss and kind of get over the fact that he's abusive. Uh, If we deal if we activate our 5-HT2A receptor uh, in terms of serotonin uptake, then what we're going to do is try to change our relationship to that boss and probably leave that workplace. Uh, so in general, uh, the contrast here is between uh, a, a sort of a, 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 an impulsivity, the functions that are reduced with the 1A are, are stress, impulsivity, aggression, and anxiety. But the functions that are reduced with 5-HT2A, which psychedelics are associated with, are rigid thinking and pessimism. Uh, so what functions are enhanced are with 5-HT2A are plasticity, environmental sensitivity, learning and unlearning, and adaptability and change. The functions that are enhanced with 1A are resilience, patience, emotional blunting, uh, tolerance of stress, that sort of thing. So that that sort of contrasts what the two receptors do in terms of behavior. You know, thank you, Del. Um, you know, I, I wanted to know, uh, you know, what you said about active and passive is really interesting and um, changing your relationship to things. And, and, you know, it reminds me of something else I think Dr. Carhart Harris has kind of put out there I think it was him, might have been someone else, but what he talked about the entropic brain and the default mode network and how some a source of depression might be not having a chaotic mind, but having a too regimented mind, a too standardized mind. And that might underlie drug dependence, drug abuse issues, and other things because you're stuck in your own thoughts. It's so like, this is who I am, this is what I do. Um, so, you know. I think that that makes me think of 5-HT, like 1A a little bit, more rigid thinking. And 2A is like, I'm going to change this. I'm not going to do that. It's very fascinating. And that's maybe why psychedelics have such a nice effect on, um, you know, behavioral changes. Uh, uh, Ethan, did you want to comment on anything Dell said? And then Nisha, I'd love to hear from you about this topic. Yeah, it was nicely synthesized. I come at this from a different point of view. Uh, My interest in 1A and 2A relates to migraine treatment. And we've, again, got a dichotomy. Uh, Many of the drugs that are useful acutely in migraine affect serotonin 1A. On the prophylactics uh, affect uh, 2A. 
Um, so, and then there's the question with the psychedelics. So they're working on two way. Every everyone pretty much agrees on that. But what accounts for the long lasting effects? Far beyond uh, when the drug is gone and has been metabolized. Um, uh, and that's one of the mysteries of psychedelic therapy that I really haven't seen addressed so far and, and hope we'll have answers to in the near future. Oh, thank you, Ethan. Uh, Del, did you like to respond to Ethan's comment? Yeah, there is increasing evidence that uh, one of the factors in the long-term effectiveness of psychedelics is activity at the sigma-1 receptor, which is a relatively unknown system of receptors, which have a great deal to do with uh, you know, the long-term effects. Uh, and we're, look, we're beginning to look at compounds that act not only at 5-HE2A, but at the sigma-1 receptor as well in terms of long-term effects. Thank you, Del. Um Nisha, I'd like to get a comment from you. You know, I know that you deal mostly with real-world data and people, and we're here we are talking about cells and receptors and drugs. So, you know, do, when you read this, do, you know, do any questions come to mind? Does it make you ponder things about psychedelics? Your thoughts, Benny, please. Yes. So, one of the things that uh, I have seen in many of the psychedelic circles. Uh, here in my home state of Texas is that um, most especially when people are doing ayahuasca, the recommendation is that if they take SSRIs, they need to take a break from those whenever they're going to go into an ayahuasca circle. And I'm wondering if, um, Del, you might be able to speak to that as to why it's really important that, that people do that. Well, I mean, in terms of ayahuasca, you know, my experience with ayahuasca comes from the field work that I did, did among, uh, primarily among the Yanomami people. And uh, I felt that uh, the experience was uh, absolutely profound uh, in that context. Uh, you know, I, I'm a great believer in uh, being able to follow through uh, an experience with the kind of integrative experience that I was provided with in, in that context. Oh, wow. Great, great question, Nisha. Uh, did you have a follow-up? <laughs> or- uh, I, I do actually. So somebody's taking SSRIs and they also choose to take any kind of a psychedelic. Um, what, might they experience and how would that be different from somebody who's not currently on SSRIs? Well, they do seem to work at cross purposes. So uh, activity at 5-HT1A seems to attenuate the activity at 5-HT2A. So, uh, you know, if you're taking SSRIs, which increase the amount of serotonin, serotonin in your system by blocking uptake, it's uh, likely that you won't have as profound or as deep an experience uh, with psychedelics than you would have. So they they do kind of work at cross purposes. Thank you. That's awesome. Um, you know, Nigam, I want to give you a chance to do that. I see you pondering over there, and I hope it's not the one A receptor being active, and you're just tolerating me asking you a question. <laughs> but 
that, <laughs> but I want to just get a sense, like, you know, I know you think deeply about a lot of this stuff. Um, and we've had lots of conversations, you know, on, on Monday nights about psychedelics and psychedelic research. So, you know, does this bring to mind any questions when you're reading this? Like, you know, gosh, I wonder, you know, what does this mean about this? Or, you know, what does this mean about, you know, Nisha talked about SSRIs and ayahuasca, which is a fascinating subject. So, um, how, what do you think about this article? Yeah, I think, uh, well, first of all, it's fascinating and, yeah, again, Dell showed me this article. Thank you, Dell, for like just literally feeding us so much uh, amazing information. Um, but and this is something uh, Dell and I had spoken about before. Was uh, I often think about the downstream application? So yes, I I you know studied as a basic fundamental researcher uh, in organic chemistry and some other areas of life science. But um, my real passion is about the translational process. How do we take this from bench to marketplace, bench to bedside, that kind of stuff, right? So, um, you know, earlier when I was saying this thing about who is the we, who is the they, what are the powers it be? So, um, and I'm asking this question, how do you get a billion dollar market valuation and all that? So the practical thing downstream is how does this work for people? It's exactly along the lines Nisha was asking that when you trend. So we have millions and millions of millions of people on these you know, what are now our traditional antidepressants. Uh, and now we have this, you know, burgeoning medicalized psychedelics thing happening. So how does the transition work is, is a question that I have. And I'm wondering, are some of these companies that are putting a lot of effort into the methods um, for psychedelic treatment, are they also planning for, are they also understanding the fundamentals of the receptor mechanisms and, and such that, you know, uh, Dell has been taking us through of how this transition is going to occur? Are there going to be protocols for that transition? I imagine they will, but, but I think it's something that still needs to be worked out. So that, that's something kind of, you know, heavy on my mind as I'm reading this. Excellent. Um, that's just a great question. Um, I don't know, Dell or Ethan, you, Dell, you want to respond real quick before we go to the next article on the transition off of SSRIs? I know, I, or Ethan? Well, I'm just saying, you know, uh, we're still working out the mechanisms apparently, but uh, it's clear to me again with the full blown psychedelic experience that your uh, filters are off. And certainly people are making connections, uh, synaptic connections in their brain that aren't ordinarily available to most people uh, in their waking state without these drugs. And uh, certainly that uh, must be es establishing uh, new dendritic branching and uh, new pathways. And so it's, it's easy to understand uh, the profundity of the effect on um, what it might mean, mean in the long term, uh, particularly in a guided experience. I think that's a, a great concept, like making a kind of connections that aren't readily available. Uh, I think that's a great thing. Uh, Dell, would you like to follow up briefly before we move I, on to the next I, article? I, I just think, yeah, I just think it's going to be unlikely that we ever distribute these compounds uh, like we would cannabis in a dispensary where you can just go and get them and use them at will. Uh, I believe that, you know, again, the best benefit to them uh, is through some kind of therapeutic context. And I think, you know, if we want to look at the first 
natural laboratory expression of how this is going to take place, we would look to measure 109 in Oregon, which will create a regulatory scheme for the distribution and clinical delivery of psilocybin. Uh, how that model rolls out and what success we see there will likely inform other similar projects, either in other states or in other countries. Fantastic. Um, you know, and I really love that statement. I was saying again, making connections that aren't readily available. And I think that's such a great transition for our next article, which is, um, you know, listener, I don't want to, you know, get too hyped up, but this is some really unique data. Uh, and we're, we're thrilled to have Nisha and Ethan, who are authors of this new article, Cannabinoid Hyperemesis Syndrome Survey and Genomic Investigation. This study is the largest contemporaneous database investigating the genetic mutations underlying cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, or CHS. And this is, again, a cyclical vomiting syndrome, a lot of you know, abdominal pain. And you know patients go through extremes to get relief from this. And, you know, one thing I know about this issue and this condition from cannabis exposure is it's contentious. And I remember the first time I heard it, I was working in product safety in cannabis at the time in standards, and all I was seeing every day was contaminated products with pesticides, mold, and fungi. And when you work in product safety, everything is contaminated. <laughs> it's like I'm touching everything with a napkin after working in microbiology. Um but you know that that doesn't that's not the case. This isn't a widespread contaminant. There is a genetic underlying condition. Now, Nisha, I would like to just get a thirty thousand foot view about the patient experience. It's one thing to read case reports. It's one thing, you know, to argue about. But this is a real thing. This isn't like, you know, uh, something the 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 drug zealots are making up about cannabis. This isn't a conspiracy theory. This is something that people are going through that we're your team has made efforts in understanding what is it and what is the, can you speak to the patient experience? Sure. The patients suffer enormously uh, and, and for a very long period of time, uh, they can vomit uh, almost um, constantly for up to 20 days at a time. I mean, it's a uh, debilitating experience. They're not able to work, to socialize, to interact with their family. They lose significant amounts of weight. Um, many of them will spend extraordinary amounts of time in the shower um, on super hot temperatures. Some of them even uh, will burn their skin uh, to get relief. Um, it, it affects their lives in very dramatic ways. And one of the saddest things about CHS is the fact that the thing that harms them is very difficult for them to walk away from. And so they really suffer in terms of being able to stop utilizing cannabis products. They spend an extraordinary sum of money figuring out what's wrong with them. Uh, some have claimed to have spent over $90,000 because this is a, a disease of um, a diagnosis of exclusion. And they spend an enormous amount of time in the emergency room trying to sort that out. So it's devastating. 
to them mentally, physically, and frankly, emotionally. Because as you said um, in the intro, a lot of people uh, believe that this is bogus, that it doesn't really exist, that people are making it up. And so the people who have CHS experience not only the physical trauma, but also psychological trauma um, as a result. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just to make make a bad joke, you know, the you know, the only vomit that I've experienced 20 times a day has come from people and their political discourse. So this is like, <laughs> this is a, a little bit different, a little more uh, serious. And, you know, it, it brings to mind a lot of things like how many cyclical vomiting syndrome cases are really cannabis hyperemesis syndromes. But I want to just share a case report I read recently about this and ask you, Nisha, if this is kind of the, the norm that people kind of go through in a conceptual sense was uh, as a male suffering from this condition, it was unclear whether or not he was abstaining from cannabis or not, but he was running 15 hours a day until he developed RABA, which is like muscle deterioration and breakdown and kidney issues, a serious medical condition from super, super, super heavy, intense exercise. Um, not just doing like two, three hours a day, but like 15 hours a day to mitigate symptoms. And I mean, the paper was entitled running out of options for CHS. And, you know, that seems like an extreme case, but you mentioned people burning themselves, um, you know, but, but that is sort of the norm for patients who are stuck with this like debilitating condition is to just maximize whatever works. Is that, would you say that's fair? I would say the norm is, yes, people are going to find something that works for them and they, they can be very strange behaviors. Uh, the gentleman who was running for 15 hours, that is not normal, but it's also not necessarily surprising. Uh, you know, we have heard similar case reports where people will run or, um, you know, frankly, there have even been some cases of people who um, masturbate constantly because that provides them some relief. And so people are that desperate that they are going to find one thing that works and they are compelled to, to do that. Fascinating. Um, wow. I have not read that case report. I'm going to have to look into that. I wonder what the crosstalk is between the body and those two systems. I mean, that's, that's amazing. I mean, I'm starting to think that maybe in terms of understanding human physiology, if we can figure out what's going on with CHS, it might even be more enlightening than uh, what psychedelics can do to the brain. But I want to give uh, Nigam and, and, and Del a chance to ask any questions um, of Ethan and Nisha while they're here. I can, of course, keep firing away questions, but I want to just give y'all a second to ask them a question about the article. Well, I, I, my first question is, uh, given that the, uh, the syndrome seems to have a genomic basis, is there a, a simple genetic test? Now, I haven't read the article yet, but is there a simple genetic test which what might indicate one's uh, sensitivity uh, to, this, to this condition that would allow you to sort of rule out ahead of time whether or not you wanted to try cannabis? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, certainly one of the things that came out of this. Uh, it's not so simple as it turns out. When we started this, we hypothesized there could be three possibilities. 
One would be some problem with the CNR1 gene that encodes for the CB1 receptor. Uh, second would be a problem with THC metabolism. Um, and third would be a issue with TRPV1 metabolism. Uh, to specify, the TRPV1 receptor is implicated here because of the ability for capsaicin, the in hot ingredient in chili peppers, applied to the skin. Um, both that and the hot bathing seem to alleviate symptoms temporarily of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Um, but as it turned out, we didn't see anything in the CB1 receptor. Uh, we did in TRPV1. We also saw a problem uh, with CYP2C9, the main metabolic enzyme for THC breakdown. Uh, but there were three other genes involved. One was the ABCA1 uh, gene that relates to cholesterol metabolism and indicates, unfortunately, uh, propensity that these folks may have for development of diabetes, Alzheimer, and coronary disease. But then probably the really newest thing was two genes uh, related to dop dopaminergic metabolism. The DRD2 gene, uh, DRD2, the D2 receptor uh, gene, uh, where antipsychotics work, and also uh, COMT, catechol-O-methyltransferase gene, both are affected. But this really provides insight into multiple manifestations of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome because uh, they help explain the compulsive behavior um, the associations with many uh, other psychiatric disturbances that seem to be comorbid uh, with this diagnosis. Um, so uh, overall, we had five statistically significant uh, mutations uh, in the CHS patients as compared to controls who had essentially equivalent levels of uh, cannabis intake but without the diagnosis or the symptoms. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, I think that uh, this test could be applied uh, as a screening tool, not just for patients who are manifesting these symptoms, but uh, the patient that might be at risk. For example, if a young person were thinking of starting cannabis and they had a sibling who had had this, uh, we could at least look at their tendency towards it, because it's clear that not everyone who uses great amounts of cannabis is susceptible uh, to this kind of problem, fortunately. Um, but we don't know what the numbers are. Uh, the one estimate in the literature, uh, I think, is an overestimate due to methodological considerations, but they thought that there would be 2.75 million Americans uh, with uh, CHS propensity. Um, it might be. Maybe it's like some conditions. Uh, they have it, but they just don't express it. Um, you know, maybe maybe there's a, there's a calculation there that of those 2.5 million, only a small percent of them actually use cannabis. But you know, of the cannabis using population, I'd imagine dispensaries would be like, we keep getting these calls. Uh, if there was really such a high, you know, if it was 2.5 million active users in the U.S., it would be super more apparent. But you know, I was really surprised in your article about the number of case reports. And one of the things from the paper was just the review was so 
so thorough and clear and easy to read. Because sometimes when you read these reports, it's clear that the author doesn't have experience writing about cannabis. Um, and so I found that really helpful and seeing like the first case report actually dated back to the 90s. It was wild. But uh, Nigam, uh, please jump in here. I'm going to step off the hemp box for a minute. Please step up, ask some, ask some questions. Uh, totally. Yeah, I'm, ex- I'm excited uh, to, to ask. It's, uh, it's so cool to be able to ask the author themselves. All right. So uh, I, I got a little list here. I'll just try to ask a, a few. Um, one thing is, uh, you know, kind of along the lines of what I was saying in my personal interest about the translational pathway. Um, and, and in no way am I saying, to be clear, like, oh, why isn't there a cure yet? But I'm asking, like, this is part of the process. You know, first, it's a mystery. We begin to understand, you know, the the genetic basis of it, which is a lot of what's elucidated here. And then we go forward from there. So that's one big question I have. What is the future outlook? Is there a, other than avoidance or abstinence or running for 15 hours or taking a hot shower, will there be some outcome that is a, drug therapy or some i guess my question is is there a potential cure on the horizon for this or is it only treatments or avoidance yeah i'm afraid that treatment or avoidance uh, the real definitive treatment for chs is abstinence from thc exposure now uh it's a question yet whether other cannabis component components could be useful in the absence of thc um because of this association with the dopaminergic uh, problems, uh, one really thinks of uh, use of cannabidiol. Uh, In our survey, which covered 205 patients with the diagnosis who had ongoing symptoms, um, it was unclear whether CBD preparations um, were a viable option. But of course, many of them would be contaminated with THC. Um, it's clear that haloperidol um, uh, is a better treatment for the nausea than standard antiemetics like the 5-HT3 drugs on Dancitron at all. Uh, however, that's not going to be a viable option in regular usage because of the terrible associated side effects of the sedation, the weight gain, the tendency towards diabetes, and then, of course, tardive dyskinesia. Um, so uh, we have lots of ideas, though. Um, Nisha could say more about lifestyle issues um, and address how a lot of these folks seem to have really crummy diets. Um, and um, I wonder if that really doesn't play into this. Uh, you know, if they're, someone's eating junk food and pro-inflammatory compounds all the time, um, maybe this is an exacerbating factor. Um, Nisha, you know, so a crummy diet, eating a bunch of cookies, is that that a a bad factor in in CHS? It appears to be so, just from the observations of uh, the people who've responded to the survey and what we're seeing uh, in the chat groups. Um, oftentimes when people get as sick as they do with CHS, it prompts them, the ones that are successful in abstaining from cannabis, it'll prompt them to kind of reevaluate life in general. And uh, the ones that are most successful in overcoming CHS, A, are able to abstain from cannabis use, and then B, 
they dramatically change their diet and even their lifestyle. And, you know, for some of them, it also means that they have to change their social networks uh, where people are hydrating appropriately and they start to incorporate more real foods into their diet, less um, processed food. Uh, they, they are the ones that really experience the most dramatic changes. Uh, Fascinating. Um, diet, you are what you eat in a sense. And, and then, you well, know, it, yeah. Yep. And if I can just add, um, many of CHAS patients will experience food as well as smell triggers. So some of them will also have to abstain from alcohol, foods that have terpenes in them, such as black pepper. Um, you, you know, it's different for everyone, but there are at least uh, 20 different food triggers that seem to be very common. Wow. Are you guys going to publish that in the next paper? <laughs> uh, hopefully. I mean, it, you have to work out first whether it's a, a biochemical effect or it might be a conditioned uh, response of some sort, particularly with the terps, uh, would associate with cannabis, for example. Uh, the smell of cannabis is a trigger to uh, vomiting. You know, it's well established uh, that this have anticipatory nausea associated with chemotherapy, people getting sick just walking into the clinic before anything happens. Um, yeah. And speaking, I'm curious too, uh, Nishi had mentioned this uh, in the green room. Uh, I'm curious, like with all these different, it, you know, it seems like a, a really awful situation. And you had mentioned to us, and it says in the paper too, correct me if I'm wrong, the annual cost of, of treatment or hospital visits can be up to $95,000. Am I getting that right? The survey respondents claim that they have spent up to $90,000 in terms of treatment and diagnosis. Uh, some of them have been dealing with this for 8, 10, 15 years. Okay, so it's not, so so let me correct myself, not not, not per year, but that's still right. a huge amount of money uh, over yes. time that these people are spending. And, yes, and consider the fact that you know, for the longest time, no one had a clue what this was and that when people would end up in the ER or go see their physician, um, they weren't quick to connect the dots back to cannabis use. And so a lot of these folks would, would go home and they'd think, oh, well, cannabis is going to make me feel better. It's going to address my nausea, vomiting, and other symptoms. When that was the thing that's actually making them sick. And that also goes back to the, just to highlight another kind of point uh, about the syndrome in general, is that people often have a misconception or, or thought that it can't be the weed that's hurting me. It's a uh, contaminant. It's the neem. It's the pesticide residue, right? So I think there's also like that issue of people, it's it's extremely unfortunate and it and it's understandable, but I think that's also part of the issue and maybe part of the reason that expense and that repeated hospital visit paradigm exists because people like psychologically don't want to accept it's the cannabis, it's the THC that's hurting me. And that's one of the reasons why it was so important to us to be able to conduct this research and you know why we intend to continue to better understand 
CHS and to to continue the research that we've done. And I did have one more question just about that. I thought it was really interesting too. And you're talking about your uh, sample population. I thought it was extremely impressive. I think your number was like 485 or something, people that you had respondents, but then obviously it gets narrowed down, right? So one thing that I thought was interesting was that only uh, a smaller amount of people so you basically you had your total sample population did a survey um then based on the survey some of them were qualified as kind of participants to do the genomic test you and then but of those people who had initially responded who were qualified only a sub amount of them actually did the test so i just had a question like as we're talking about advancing the research and understanding it better maybe the future um goal is for people, as we'd already mentioned, to take a genetic test if they're having an issue or if their family member has an issue, just like you would do with a heart arrhythmia or cancer or whatever, right? So, um, but is there something unique about this that people are hesitant to do the genetic test because it's a cannabis thing? Or is that an issue we see in the field in general? Maybe, uh, you know, Dr. Rousseau, maybe that's something from your medical experience you've seen. I'm just, I'm just curious, like, why didn't people want to do the test? Right. Well, it's really complicated. But yeah, we started off with 585 people that responded to the survey. We were extremely picky. Uh, We required that the CHS group, um, for which we have the survey statistics, uh, only include people who had all the criteria, uh, the nausea, the vomiting, the abdominal pain, the hot water treatment, plus they had to have an actual diagnosis of CHS by a physician, Hmm. plus having ongoing symptoms. So that got us down to 205. Of the 205, they were all offered the option of the genomic test. 99 agreed to get it, but only 28 returned it. Um, uh, Why? Well, there's several reasons. First is general worry about uh, getting your DNA out there. You know, there's been, been a lot of uh, news stories about uh, uh, your cousin got a DNA test and now you're being accused of a crime, uh, particularly sexual assault, um, that kind of thing. That goes along with the general paranoia that still exists in relation to cannabis usage. Not everybody lives in a legal state. Um, And so there's that. And then to be honest, we had a great deal of pushback from the online CHS community. Uh, Actually, uh, there was some active persuasion not to return the tests. Uh, So that accounts for the whittling down. However, even with uh, 28 patients uh, versus 12 controls, we had five pretty uh, strongly statistically significant differences. Um, one of our hopes is that with publication of the article and the uh, soon-to-be availability of a test that could be ordered by physicians, that we'll get a lot more people taking it and have more insight into these genetic uh, mutations as well as the possibility of others. Uh, so, uh, really, we hope this is a springboard to better understanding of the condition. What well, one thing, and and we are running a little low on time. Uh, just one thing uh, that I have to ask because it's so curious. What can you just speak to briefly? What what or why was the pushback from the online CHS community? Uh, they questioned our motives. 
Uh, some people didn't like the uh, questions that were asked, why certain people were selected. Um, however, you know, this went through the Western in, uh, Institutional Review Board, and um, uh, we, we think we did a good job with it. So, Okay, well, well, let me ask about the motives real quick. So, this study... How much do I have to pay to access it? Is the data hidden behind, like, in some, like, smoke-filled room in a corporation? Do I have to pay $75 to access this article? Absolutely Can I not. Uh, no. The study's published in the journal Cannabis and Cannabinoid Research. It'll be open source, uh, so anyone can get it free online. Fantastic. And we'll, we'll provide uh, links uh, to do so. We had to pay for, so it can be open source, and we were very happy to do it because we think it's important this is this information be available to anybody who's treating somebody with CHS and CHS patients because they're desperate for answers, and we feel like this is one wonderful way for us to be able to help them. Well, I want to thank you, and I also can't believe you have to pay extra to have uh you know, to have open access to your article so people can read it. It seemed like a journal would want to facilitate people reading the things published in it, not setting price barriers at every possible entry point. Uh, but hey, what, what do I know? Uh, <laughs> You're a starry-eyed optimist. Before we move on, I, I wanted to ask one question. Um, do you think that the effect of the hot baths and the capsicum uh, point to a possible mechanism of action. Absolutely. Yeah, they're both mediated through the TRPV1 receptor, which um, the capsaicin is actually absorbed uh, into the bloodstream through the skin. Um, and both uh, the TRPV1 uh, has activity on gut motility. Uh, it relates to emetic uh, tendency to throw up, uh, through uh, mediation in the brain. Uh, so yeah, it really helps explain a, a lot of the commonality of those two seemingly quite distinct modalities in treating the condition. Excellent. All right, uh, Ethan, Nisha, any final comments before we go to the, before we take a break and go to the game? Uh, just to say again, uh, we hope People will avail themselves of the opportunity to read this article free and understand this enigmatic condition. Excellent. All right, listener, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with today's game. At Marco and Aurora, we understand that navigating the investment landscape in cannabis and psychedelics is complex. We utilize our in-house expertise in science to support investors and innovators. Reach out to us to start a conversation about how we can help guide your investment decisions and prepare your next venture for success. Welcome to today's game. Today, our group will be playing for the grand prize of helping to expand scientific thought. Today's game is a new one that we're beta testing on the show called Name That Drug. So I will summarize a case report about either a psychedelic, a cannabis, or another commonly used substance. And the participants must guess which drug it was 
uh, from a couple of choices after I briefly described this case report. I'm happy to answer any follow-up questions while you are mulling over your decisions. So, uh, a 39-year-old female patient was suffering from severe treatment-resistant depression and other symptoms associated with a complex personality disorder was admitted for an experimental treatment with this drug. This substance was administered in repeated weekly ascending doses. Uh, curiously, there, was, there were no substantial acute subjective effects of the drug, despite adequate dosing, which also confirmed by plasma drug concentration monitoring. The patient showed rapid, significant improvement, most notable changes in depressed mood, emotional instability, loss of energy, and suicidal ideation. Additionally, uh, a questionnaire, the... Uh, indicated significant decreases in global severity in various psychopathological, psychopathological subscales. So improvements persisted for about seven days, give or take, after each administration. Due to the severe course of the illness and resistance to previous treatment, the physicians decided to continue this experimental approach with weekly repeated doses of the drug. Um, two interesting features of this, right? The drug was associated with significant improvements and various symptoms of a condition difficult to treat. Um, and secondarily, symptom reductions occurred in the absence of the acute drug's effect. Uh, the, I will give a big bonus clue. The time course of these improvements, uh, quoting the authors, resembled antidepressant effects seen after administration of ketamine. So, for the grand prize of helping to expand scientific thought, was it uh, A, mushroom tea, B, a cannabis product, C, LSD, or D, a hemp CBD product? So once again, uh, you know, this patient had big reduction in symptoms that were difficult to treat. Uh, again, we talked about depression, uh, in, you know, instability with mood and things like that. Um, it seemed to resemble depression for these clinicians observing this patient in this experimental treatment, receiving weekly doses seemed to help for about seven days at a time. Mushroom tea, you know, of course, containing an active ingredient, solosa, not like reishi mushroom, but, you know, cubensis mushroom. Um, was it uh, a cannabis product, LSD, or was it hemp CBD? And I could give some clues here. I could say this wasn't done in the United States. Uh, if that if that case report helps, and again, this was an experimental treatment. Um, Nigam, would you like to uh, ask any questions, or uh, do you have a guess? Not yet. Oh man, it's hard. I see some guesses in the chat. Let's let someone else say it. So, uh, any thoughts on what you, you Dell? What what do you think it is? I, I think just by ruling everything out, it's got to be hemp CBD. Because, and I'll tell you why, uh, nobody's using mushroom tea in an FDA trial. Uh, I think it's a bit unlikely that somebody's using mushroom tea, although I could be wrong. LSD, the idea that you're going to be giving it to people on a weekly basis, that sounds like an exhausting protocol. Uh, so I'm left with hemp CBD. All right. Um, anyone else like to walk through that. So, you know, that is a good point. Ask a like, question? Yeah, please, Nisha. So in the, as it was administrated uh, there at the end, were those micro doses or standard doses? Um, Ooh, 
Good question. That, that is a good question. And, and for the big reveal at the end, maybe we can debate about it. But um, for me, I would say, you know, it was pretty substantial expected dose of the product. Like I, I, I read it and I was like, oh, that's, that seems reasonable. You know, um, it wasn't like, you know, a, a sub, a, a nano dose or an exceptionally high dose of where'd you, drug. Where'd you get that phrase, nano dose? Where'd you get that from? <laughs> Who, said no, that? That, Who said that to you? Oh, sorry. That's trademarked by Nigam Aurora. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah so it wasn't anything crazy like that um so yeah you know ethan you know you have experience in both the cannabis and psychedelic space when you hear a case report like this and the choices presented i mean again it's not about being right or wrong it's going to hear how your really cool brain would work through this well i uh, you know i thought it was ketamine on the initial description but uh Given everything, I think it was probably LSD, and some people just don't get off. And that would be particularly the case in this context, because this may have been somebody uh, who was on SSRIs and uh, was going to be resistant uh, to the the obvious psych, uh, psychoactive manifestations to some degree. I'm going to actually second Ethan, because I think the cannabis ones... I believe in the uh, the efficacy of cannabis and and uh, you know spanning THC as well as hemp, but having a lasting week long effect uh, is is a little like usually I have to use cannabis more like more often I I think to get to get that uh, the mushroom tea seems to be uh, uh, kind of like cut out because it seems like it's not working the trial so I, I'm going to second Ethan I, I'm going to vote for LSD so I'm going to say uh, one more thing and then we're going to. Just finalize the guesses and see if this changes your guess. Okay. Uh, all right. The patient was administered two doses of MDMA before they tried this substance. And there were you know, several, a few weeks interval before they started the new drug. Uh, just because, again, that was the treatment-resistant drug. So if I was to tell you this patient in this case report, before they tried one of the drugs I listed below, uh, mushroom tea, uh, LSD, uh, hemp product, CBD product, or kind of a cannabis or THC rich product. They tried MDMA before and it didn't, you know, not in what super country impressive. was the research done? I'm going to say it was done in, uh, it appears to be, um, be a, to have been conducted in Switzerland and with researchers also from uh, Germany. Oh, I think, I think it's LSD. <laughs> yeah. LSD. Okay. Well, if, um, well, let's just say this, uh, sorry, you know, uh, if you thought hemp CBD was the correct answer, much like a lot of CBD products on the market, that just doesn't work. Uh, so that is not the correct answer. If you were really thinking mushroom tea might have been a choice, it sounded a little like crazy idea. Why would they do that? That's because it is a crazy idea. I just made that one up. So what that means is if you thought it was LSD, then we must be communicating telepathically because that is the correct answer. This was indeed a very interesting case looking at 50, 100, I think 150 micrograms of LSD. So again, I would say 100, around the 100 microgram LSD threshold is a decent size dose for a clinical application, seven days of an effect. It does sound like an exhausting protocol. Um, but anyway, thank you so much for playing. That's our show. Thank you, listener, for clicking, tapping, swiping, or however you are hearing this. 
Thank you to our trusty audio engineer for editing this. And thank you to our podcast cover artists. More information about that in the show notes. All right. Thank you for Marku and Aurora. Hope you check in with our next episode. Bye.